Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 2. Title of the message is Christ our Lord. So he extensively explained in chapter 1 the authority of the one we just sang about. Um, worthy of all of our praise, our devotion, the, the one who commands our destiny. Um, as we think about the, the songs and the words written about him. Let's pray before we begin today. Heavenly Father, help us in this hour to fix our eyes on your Son, to be concerned with what he says, and to be willing to be obedient to make it a part of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul continues this doctrinal letter to a church that he's never been to that will come up immediately in this chapter, um, which makes it easy to apply to us and everyone else, which is also true of all of his other letters. Um, he doesn't write chapter 2 in his letter as he comes to where we were at, and um, I understand the purpose in that and the practical nature of it. There were no verses and chapters for hundreds of years after the Bible was written. Um, but it is beneficial for us to locate quickly and do things like that. So because this is in the flow of what he's been teaching in this case, we're going to go back to chapter 1 and verse 27, and we're going to read through verse 3 of chapter 2, um, verse 28 of chapter 1 and verse 2 of chapter 2 are saying the, the same thing and pointing to the same thing. Verse 27 Colossians chapter 1. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have met, not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of, the com of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely, namely Christ. So Paul is, each one of these verses is a sermon, but he's explaining here that um, on a very practical purpose, the reason I'm in prison is for the church. The reason I'm in prison is because for people like you, Colossae, and for those in Laodicea, two churches that he has never been to, so we have this valley that we know later from this letter that Hierapolis is also a church that would have been included in this. And for everyone I've never met personally, like me, Paul says, this is for you. He's directing it to anyone who would pick this up anywhere and read it. That if we begin to understand Paul's role, we understand it's not about Paul, it never is. But we also understand that he is the one who at this moment is sitting under house arrest in chains with Roman soldiers looking over his shoulders as he writes this letter to a church in Colossae. 
And I think that we'll discover the impact of that when we get to heaven, when Paul will close letters by saying things like, those here in Rome send you greetings. So the, the impact on soldiers coming to know Christ was probably also a part of this. And he says that it's worth it. I'm here. I'm strenuously contending, end of chapter 1. Let me know how extensively, let me let you know how extensively I am contending, and I understand it, I accept my role. Um, that's probably the best definition of meek, is not timid, but completely accepting their role. So Christ was the, the model of meekness, that, Father, whatever you ask me to do, I accept it. Whatever you tell me to go, whatever you tell me to do, including the cross, if that's my role, Father, I accept it. Paul is saying the same thing. If your role, Heavenly Father, is to represent your son to churches I've never been to by sitting in chains and writing letters, I accept it. I am more than willing to accept my role. So we see in verse 27, the mystery of Christ, um, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, to know, to epignosis, um, so that can be for both um, knowledge and know, and in this case, epignosis, his, his hope in writing this, his reason for contending, the reason for his meekness in accepting his role is that they would take this letter and take the words off of the pages, which weren't Paul's, but they're given through Paul, they would put them into action, then they would epignosis, the mystery of God. They would go beyond, which he will say in verse 3, where we see the word um, knowledge in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. That's just gnosis. In other words, everything that's true, everything that's wisdom, is in Christ. When we take the words that he gives us and we put them into action and we do what he tells us to do as individuals and as churches, then we epignosis. We take knowledge, we put it in action, then we know. So knowledge is true if you follow it or not. The knowledge that is in Christ is perfect whether you follow it or not. So in the parable of the four soils, they all acknowledge it's true. I believe it's true. But one of them experienced the Greek word epignosis. I followed it. He's proved it to me. I know. So Paul says if we renew our minds by taking God's word, doing what it says, we will come to know his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He says, in a sense, in Romans 12, to test God. Go ahead. If you're a skeptic, you believe God is true, you believe his word is true, but this epignosis thing that, that you can walk around with this blessed assurance that Jesus is mine, if, you, if you don't, you're not convinced yet that it's true, follow him. Do what he says. See if he will keep his end of the bargain. Um, if we go back to verses 9 through 12, Paul is talking about this epignosis in chapter 1. 
verses 9 through 12, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the epignosis, not just the knowledge, Colossians 1, or 2 and verse 3, but the epignosis, um, verse 2 of chapter 2, to fill you with the knowledge of his will, Romans 12, 2, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the, there it is, epignosis of God, being strengthened with all power, this dynamis spirit, power of God from the Holy Spirit, according to his glorious might, so, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So Paul says, here's how it works. Take what he says, accept that it's true, then step into it and do what it says. Live your life completely for him and the Holy Spirit who has supernatural, almighty God power will take those words and they will come through you, through your actions and your understanding and you will know for sure. Jesus is mine. Heaven is mine. He lives in me and somehow I live in him and I've been seated, we will learn in Colossians, at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus. So there's an intellectual ascent that says, well, this, this book seems to be telling the truth and that's what it says. Okay. But then there's this epignosis that I follow Christ faithfully enough, long enough, becoming mature that, that now I'm being trained to do each day the things that he says for me to do. Then I experientially know that it's true. Can't explain that to someone that doesn't understand that, but I know it. It's the very fiber of my being. The Holy Spirit has revealed it because I've done what he's asked me to do and he's done what he promised to do. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This doctrinal statement like no other in Paul's letters, though he refers to it in all of his letters. So we, we will not get hung up here even though this is really the the foundation and understanding of a body of believers from Christ through Paul to us. Verse 11 of Ephesians 4, So Christ himself gave apostles, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to, this is why, to equip people for works of service so that the body may be built up. If you're a follower of Christ, you are a church builder. 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith, and there it is, knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we attain the full measure. We, we come in unity and knowledge that is more than, yes, we all will say, if you ask us if it's true, yes, we think it's true. But that's not what Paul is saying here. If we are equipped, if we are trained, if we are following Christ, we will know together. We will understand together. Our unity will not be the things that we have in common as human beings. Our unity will be that God promises to a body of believers that if you follow Christ in this way, I will unify you. I will make it happen. 
I will take people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, all different parts of your community, and I will make you unified. I will give you personal, intimate knowledge. Uh, verse 14 then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Colossians 1.18, verse 16 from him, from Christ, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So if it's a unified body, if each person is maturing, each person is growing, each person is investing themselves, each person is, Romans 12, 9, honoring one another in love and elevating others above themselves, for Christ's purpose, then that body will become unified. A storm will come and it will hit and it might hurt, but it won't separate. And that's the promise of a unified body. That truth in love is acceptable even before it's agreed upon. That decision has been made that if that's where you're getting your answer from and we look at what God has to say and we agree with what he has to say, then truth can bring two differences into one. And Paul is promising that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13 as he writes these same thing to Jewish believers. Verse 20 of Hebrews chapter 13 an exceedingly important doctrinal chapter um, which happens to be written to Messianic Christians but obviously applies to all of us. Verse 20 of Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, and that title we'll talk a little bit more about today, Kyrios Jesus, which is Master Savior, that great shepherd of the sheep, capital S, there's another name for Jesus in the Bible, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Judy read about it. We just sang about it. The glory of the one and only Son of God. Colossians 1.18, the supreme one of the church. The supreme one over all things, in all things, through all things, for one person, Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here that our Lord Jesus Christ has brought us together to equip us to mature us and to use us to do things we could never do on our own so that in the end his sheep will serve his purpose testifying to the world something the world doesn't know. Go back to Colossians chapter 2 verse 4. Actually, I'll pick it up in verse 3. 
in whom this promise of Christ in us, the supreme authority over the church, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So there, knowledge is just gnosis, knowledge. Um, that's what the word science means in English, knowledge, um, gnosis. So all of the truth, everything that matters, everything that can take a person and metamorph them from fallen human being to spirit-led Christian. All of that is hidden in Christ so that when John the Baptist, speaking by the Holy Spirit, sees him coming, this is the one, the Lamb of God, full of grace and truth. All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge in Christ. And Paul is teaching us in this passage that if we will activate that knowledge in our lives, we know experientially. We know it's true. And they knew it, the apostles knew it was true to the extent where they gave their lives for it because they knew experientially that it was the only truth. Verse 4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So Paul would have been to probably hundreds of cities. There was probably effective work in God in four times as many churches in the Bible as are listed. We see way more churches listed than his epistles. So not everywhere Paul went did the gospel take hold. But he is talking to Colossae, who he's gotten information from Epaphras, 1,400 miles away, across land and sea twice, all the way to Rome, he has heard that these people have taken the word of Christ, they've done what it says, they accepted it, that it wasn't from Epaphras, that it was from Jesus Christ himself. They have acknowledged him as their Lord and they've put it into action. And Paul is saying, I know and I've heard and I'm excited and delighted. Why? To see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. That's an interesting thing to write to a church. It is a clear, extravagant compliment. What did Paul know about Colossae? They were disciplined. That their faith in Christ was visibly firm. That when something came at them, they stood with Christ. When something came between them, they stood with Christ. And Paul is writing this letter with enthusiasm as he's sitting in his prison cell to a group of people he has never met because he, is, he has seen it proven again that God will transform individuals and bodies of believers if they will stand firm and be disciplined in Christ. So we're going to look at that discipline a little bit. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. You see there in your notes, Revelation 3.19, where Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea, and we know that Christ's desire is always reconciliation. So we are in the Laodicean age. Um, we are living in the time where the lukewarm church is prevalent, um, and we see a letter written to a church that's lukewarm, 
and he is telling them some pretty harsh language about things better change here or else. And he says in Revelation 3.19 in your notes, those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Those are things that we're commanded to do with each other that is hard for us to do. It is the least attractive thing for us to do. So he told us in Colossians 1 verse 28 that we are as bodies of believers. He's saying we there, and Paul is not even a part of the church in Colossae, but we admonish and we teach everyone to become fully mature. Admonishing is not what we desire to step into. But if we don't step into it, we don't become mature. So Paul will say things like in Titus 1.9 that one of the primary directives of a leader is to be able to take a situation and speak doctrine into it. Rebuke when necessary, encourage when necessary. And Paul is, or Jesus is saying that to the church in Laodicea in Hebrews 12. Um, much is written about discipline here. Paul talks about Colossae being disciplined. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. He just said that. The glory of Christ in you leading to per perseverance to do what he asked you to do. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So there is the reality. He's writing to a church here. There is the reality. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. For we were made in him. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do the good works he planned in advance for us to do. So that's one of the things that came out of my mouth when I was speaking to Marilyn yesterday about losing her daughter. I said, we have... We see things through time, and God lives outside of time. So we don't understand why Stephen gets to live 18 years, and John gets to live 100 years. But we understand that Stephen did everything God asked him to do in 18 years. And John did everything God asked him to do over 100 years. And that knowing what we know about Hannah... Her works he planned in advance to do were complete. How do we know that? Because she's gone. So Paul gives us another truth here, applying that to church bodies. That there are works planned in advance to do for this body that we are to step into that will, no other body will be asked to. So he says, let us run the the race with perseverance that's marked out for us in verse 1. So it is individuals he's referring to, but he's writing to a church, and that's a race marked out for church bodies. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So, be joyful always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, 
a short verse, a hard verse. So there was joy at a life celebration for Hannah on Friday. That was actually Friday, not yesterday. There were tears. There was suffering. There was sadness. There was hearts aching. But there was joy. And that was the topic of discussion. Paul is saying here that Jesus, heading to the cross, had joy. And it's humbling to know that we're what he was thinking about. That I couldn't go to heaven without the cross. And that gave him joy to walk towards it and not avoid it. And he says, Paul says here at the end of verse 3, think about him. Think about what he did so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's a very harsh reality from Paul that's true. Um, it hasn't cost me anything like it cost Christ. Verse 5, and... Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Revelation 3.19 And he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. If it's a true statement that you've never been, or never been disciplined by the Lord, then Paul is saying you're not his. So you could take a scripture statement, I'm going through great or I'm going through a difficult time right now. It came to pass. It will pass. If you walk with Christ, he'll take you through it. I'm not experiencing any hardship right now. That came to pass too. Paul says we must go through suffering to enter the kingdom. We must, we must be a living sacrifice to enter the kingdom of God. And Job and Paul and others would tell us that's when you really learn, that's when you really epignosis the love of God. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. That's an important statement. If, if I'm not following Christ, I cannot describe the Lord's will or not the Lord's will what is happening in my life. If I'm following Christ and I'm put in prison, I'm persecuted for the Lord. If I'm following Christ and I develop cancer, Paul says, treat that as if it's the Lord's discipline, knowing that the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. So he's not disciplining you, Paul says, but treat it that way. So the focus isn't, what am I going through? The focus is, who am I going with? And if I'm going with him, hardship, difficult things to go through, um, are part of the way to experience following God in that way. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. He's literally saying you're not a child of God if discipline eludes you your entire life. Not true sons, he says, and daughters at all. Moreover, 
we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of the spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while, as they thought best, meaning our earthly fathers, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it, by discipline. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Encourage, lift it up, joy instead of I'm discouraged. As soon as this trial in my life is over, I will come back and I will serve the Lord. Paul is saying, let him take you through it. Let him help you understand that he loves those that he allows to go through difficult things. So he would have said to Job, I'm not disciplining you, Job, but I'm allowing this so that you can experience what the Lord's discipline is like and so that you can testify to Satan, secondarily, that a human being can follow Christ, follow God through a trial, and primarily so that all of us can put Job in that cloud of witnesses. And we can go through things that none of us want to go through. And we can fix our eyes on the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And Job would say in Job 42 and verse 5, I believe, um, about his response to God. He says in verse 3 of chapter 42, before I had heard of you, now I've seen you. Now I epignosis you, God. I know what it's like to go through something with you. And he says about his own asking why, in verse 5, he says, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, not glorious, great to experience, but I started to ask you why without realizing that your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I shouldn't have done that, Job says. Job said that, not God, to Job. Turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So he is built to this place so far in this letter, starting with, I thank God every time I pray for you because of your faithfulness, your love for Christ, your love for one another, your standing firm, your disciplined, your obedient, you're doing what he's asking. Now he says, do it more. Just like 2 Peter 1, add to it, keep doing it, persevere. And he says, just as you received Christ as Lord, that's the only way Christ can be received. And he's explaining it to us by testifying what they did. They received Jesus Christ, Savior, Anointed One, as Kyrios, 
So Paul says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth, if you declare with your mouth, He is Lord, and you believe in your heart that what He did on the cross was for me, full payment, all Him, you will be saved. So I looked this morning at that, that word um, declare in Romans 10.9, which is homologeo, which is in the Greek, a profession of allegiance. It's a decision. It's not a verbal acquaintance with God. It is saying, I declare with my mouth that the Lord of lords is my Lord. So Paul says in Colossians, just as you received him as Lord. Continue. Strong, faithful, doing what he says. So Romans are in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, same word as declare in Romans 10, 9, he will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I come to him saying, I declare um, as a believer, 1 John 1, 9, I declare that you are Lord, you are right about my sin, I am here to repent, and I'm coming here with a declaration of allegiance to you. All my sins are wiped out. What a glorious truth that 1 John 1, 9 is. Um, turn to, or look in your notes there first of all, as Paul is describing this to King Agrippa, the Lordship of Christ, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. In other words, everywhere Paul went, this is his message. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So he says to Colossae, just as you declared him as Lord, now demonstrate it through your deeds. Demonstrate it more. Become more mature. Get closer to him. Um, turn to Titus just a couple books forward, chapter 3. So we see that picture in Romans 10, 9. We see that picture. I've already referred to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And in Titus, he is giving this full picture of the gospel there. He has talked and called them to the obedience that comes from grace in chapter 2. And he is describing fully what he just described to King Agrippa beginning in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, Paul writes, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another, just like the opening verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So the regenerator is the Holy Spirit, and that's why the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. Because if we do not acknowledge Christ as having dynamis spirit power, we are denying the Holy Spirit who is the one who will regenerate us to have glorified bodies one day. So Paul is explaining that, and he goes on here 
verse 6. I'll read verse 5 with us. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, Romans 5, 1 and 2, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is that mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory in Colossians. Verse 8 is the why. Why does God do all this? What's his purpose? This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in him may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Romans 10.9, he's telling us to make him Lord. Ephesians 2.10, to do the works he planned in advance for us to do. Hebrews chapter 12, to run the race that he has marked out for us. In Titus chapter 3, he saved us not because of anything we've ever done, but he saved us to do everything he asked us to do. So he explains in verse 8, this is why he saved you, so that you would live for him. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. It's the same message in every letter that Paul writes, and we have watered it down um, to a prayer in 2023. Let's go back to Colossians Chapter 2 and verse 8. Paul says, and he's already given us a warning um, back in verse 4, he gives us um, what is happening in this territory of Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae is this Illuminati, this angelic enlightenment and the worship of angels. And so he is addressing those things inside a church. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human traditions and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than Christ. That's more of a challenge to each one of us than we realize. What do you think we ought to do, Dream? This is an important question. Dream's response, you know, it's not really important what I think. Let's find out what he thinks. And it is tempting for all of us to think, boy, this sure seems like it would be a good idea. Do you agree? Yeah, I agree. Let's go ahead and do it. Paul says, never, never, never. See to it that no one takes you captive to a hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human principles and the traditions of this world rather than on Christ. Christ. What do you think I should do in this situation? Well, I'm glad you asked, Jim, because I decided that before you were. Look it up. Do it, and I'll go with you. And that's a promise from multiple places in the Bible. Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head 
over every power and authority. So that's not dynamis there. He's talking about demons. He's talking about presidents. He's talking about kings and monarchs and church leaders. That he's over them, we just sang that. He's over all of them. His followers say, not only is that true, you're over me. So I will not be taken captive by what the world or a brother or sister or anyone else says that doesn't come from you. Even if we all agree it's a good idea. So Paul is giving this warning to a church that he's never met, giving it to us at the same time. Uh, you see there in your notes, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So in one statement there, I went to a, an infant baptism of an extended family member where he read this verse. And then he went on to say that this child was born again because they sprinkled water on him. And he read this verse, verse 17 in your notes. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says that when you take what Jesus did on the cross and you say, we will give this child grace through this water or we will receive grace through communion or we will receive grace through other religious duties that man has decided a right to do, he says you take the cross and you pour it out. You empty it. Because what God's word said is that all of that grace comes through him. And it comes only through him. And there are no, and he's going to talk about this next week in Colossians chapter 2, you're going to be tempted in the world to be in religion, touch this and feel that and experience this and do this. And Paul says, stay away. Don't let that happen. It seems innocent that someone would say, you know, let's, let's just have this child be born again, let's sprinkle some water on him, and let's be glad that now he's in God's family, and people are genuinely, they're not choosing to be disobedient, they're choosing to do what people who say they represent Christ have said, you need to do this. And Paul says, if you're reading my letters, which came through him, you need to know it's hollow, it's deceptive, it's demonic, 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy chapter 4, and it's emptying the cross of Christ. It's as if he didn't die. So in Hebrews he would say that you are trampling the Son of God under your feet. Another verse in your notes there, Galatians 6, verse 14, Paul says. May I never boast, may, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So how 
how can you be a Christian? How can, the, how can you say the power of God lives in you? How can you say that you know you're going to spend eternity in heaven? How can you say that you know God the Father's will? It's the short answer. Jesus Christ. His word, his promises, his cross, his death, his resurrection. Paul says, he's saying to us in 1 Corinthians there that anything beyond the finished work of the cross is a lie. And we can't accept it. In 1 Timothy, in closing there in your notes in chapter 6, verses we memorized a while back on Wednesday night, his most faithful student is being reminded again as a shepherd. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and of the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in doing so have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Heavenly Father, let's take the, help us to take the warning that was given to Timothy. If we've been justified by declaring your Son as Lord, and we've been given a glorious possession of the written revelation of God, the promises that were given to Abraham become ours, the promise of the rapture of the church become ours, the eternal things and every blessing in the heavenly realm has become ours. Help us to guard it and to protect it and to, be, to love each other enough to hear something in our own body that does, does not come from the word of God and lovingly step into that situation with truth. In Jesus' name, amen.